Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 5 and Lord's Day 6. There we start a new section about our deliverance. And here we find God's word summarized as follows. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment, either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God made our wisdom, our, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. From where do, we, from where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. After the sermon, we will respond by singing from hymn 34, the stanzas 4, 5, and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, and that includes you also, boys and girls, and teenagers. The Catechism says that we have to make full payment. Payment. When you hear that word, what comes to your mind? No doubt you have mixed emotions, mostly negative, but also positive. For we know all about having to make payments. We do it all the time. We have to pay our bills, our mortgage, or the rent payments, payments to the church, to the school, to our credit card company, to the hydro and water and gas company, you have to pay for your groceries and for your clothes. The list goes on and on. 
When you don't have a lot of money, the concept of having to pay all the time can send chills down your spine. When you can't pay your bills, then you feel like a failure. It can give you that rotten feeling in the pit of your stomach. The negative feelings about having to pay do not just apply to poor people, to rich people as well. When you are rich, then a lot is expected from you. People want you to pay for them. They're always there for a handout because they figure you're rich. And so the word payment has some negative connotations attached to it. There is so much expected from us. It can be overwhelming at times. But the word payment can also have positive connotations. There's great relief, for example, when you finally pay off your credit card bill or when you make your last mortgage payment. You have a sense of accomplishment. It's like having a monkey off your back. And you have similar feelings when somebody else pays for you. You children of this congregation should be able to identify with that as well. Suppose, children, there is something that you really would like to have. You've had your eye on that item for quite some time, a new bike, for example, or a new toy. And then a kind relative of yours says, you go ahead and buy it. I'll pay for it. That's like music to your ears, isn't it? Lord's Days 5 and 6 also have to do with payment. We owe. We owe a lot to the Lord God. And he wants us to pay. There is no way that we can weasel out of it. And if we don't pay, we're in big trouble. In the last three Lord's Days, that reality has been brought home to us. Those Lord's Days dealt extensively with our sins and misery. They dealt with how much we owe God. And now we are into a new section dealing with our deliverance. You would think that by now we would be done with the negativity and that finally we can move to more positive territory. You would think that after such an extensive treatment we would get it. We don't need to hear more. We would rather hear some good news. But once again, this Lord's days gets us into negative territory. We hear here about God's righteous judgment, about the fact that we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. We hear here especially about having to make full payment for our debt. For God's justice is not easily satisfied. We're still here in dark and foreboding territory. Only the second half of Lord's Day 6 finally allows the light to shine. For there we are finally introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is noteworthy how the Heidelberg Catechism comes to this. It does this through a series of questions and answers. It takes us step by step from the depth of despair to the need for a mediator. Many commentators are somewhat irritated by this method. They do not like the method of the Heidelberg Catechism. They say that that is not how we get to know the Lord God in the scriptures. It is too rationalistic, too logical, step by step. That's not the way the Bible deals with it. And there is some truth to that. The Belgic 
in fashion appears to be more scriptural in its approach. Whereas the Heidelberg Catechism in question 15 asks what kind of mediator and deliverer we must seek, the Belgian Confession states what we confess in the Bible. In Article, Article 28 says that we believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and just, sent his son to assume that nature in which disobedience had been committed to make satisfaction in that same nature and to bear the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. It says exactly the same thing as the catechism, but in a more positive way. It doesn't ask what kind of mediator we must seek, but confesses who the mediator is and what he does. It is a less rationalistic approach. And yet there is something to be said for the approach of the Heidelberg Catechism. For if there is one thing it does, it is to really show what needs to take place with regard to that great payment that we have to make to God. It makes us take a look once more at the enormity of our debt and at the wonderful news about the payment that has been made. It also makes us realize who alone can save us. It makes us realize that we should not seek our salvation in a mere man. And so the theme for this morning's service is as follows. Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Mediator. First of all, as promised in the Old Testament. And secondly, as fulfilled in the New Testament. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Adam and Eve when they sinned? The one moment they are on top of the world, king and queen of the universe. And the next moment they lost it all. At one point they had everything they could possibly desire. And then suddenly it's gone. And they brought this upon themselves. It's their own fault. They made a huge blunder. They committed a terrible sin. Think about how they must have felt. The moment that they went against God's commandment was the moment they also realized what a horrible thing they did. For as soon as they ignored God's decree not to eat from the tree of life, they could sense right away that there was something very seriously wrong with them. At that very moment they experienced in every part of their body and mind and all around them in creation that something terrible and humanly speaking irreversible had just happened. Whereas before they saw and experienced nothing but beauty and bliss, now everything is ugly and strange and threatening. We cannot even begin to imagine what it would have been like for them. But we can take a stab at it. We do know what it's like, for example, when we ourselves break something beautiful and expensive. Suppose you own a beautiful, brand new, shiny car. It's very expensive. And the first time you drive it out of the driveway, you don't look where you're going because you're so excited. And you cause a serious accident. And the car is a write-off. You have no insurance on it because you had not yet found out, found the time to arrange that. How would you feel? 
awful, wouldn't you? At one point, you're the proud owner of such a beautiful new car, and then you have nothing. As a matter of fact, now all you have is a big debt to pay off because you still owe the bank for that car. Perhaps the young children of this congregation can understand that as well. Your mom and dad give you a beautiful new present. You have been wanting that present for a long time. Let's say it's a new toy. But right after you got that new toy, you break it. You were too rough with it, and now the toy is useless. That would make you feel awful, wouldn't it? Especially if you know that your mom and dad are going to be angry with you. Well, multiply that thousands and thousands of times as to how Adam and Eve will have felt when they realized what they had done. Awful. And that's why they also tried to hide themselves from God. They didn't dare look him in the face. They didn't dare be in his presence. They were overwhelmed with feelings of total alienation from God and even from each other and even from the rest of creation. But then something absolutely wonderful happens. The Lord God does not outright reject them. And that in itself is wonderful. He seeks them out. He is still willing to seek them and to talk to them. Doesn't mean that he wants to completely let them off the hook. No, they have to suffer the consequences. But in spite of what they have done, he tells them that they still have a relationship together and that he is going to find a way in which they once again can be restored to their former glorious position. In other words, the Lord God says to them that he is going to make everything right again in one way or the other. What a tremendous feeling of relief. For what does he say? He says that the serpent, who represents the devil and who tempted them, that that serpent, that the devil, is going to be destroyed. He is going to crush his head. The Lord God doesn't give any more details. He doesn't tell them exactly how that's going to happen and exactly by whom or when that will take place. But they have to take their word for it that somehow things are going to be right again. But now they also have to believe him and act out of that belief. As long as they put their trust in him, they will be safe. That's wonderful news. Do you know what the trouble is? Man does not want to trust in God and to do what he says. They think that they can fix things themselves. They don't take their predicament seriously enough. For you see, that is man's nature. That is my nature. That is your nature. That's what you and I are like. Man thinks that somehow he can straight things, straighten things out himself. Or at least that he can help God a little here and there. Or perhaps that somebody else can do it. And that's why the catechism is constructed the way it is. It makes it very clear that an ordinary man or woman can in no way make things right again. 
There is no way that man can restore things to their former glory. He cannot even have a role in it, not even a minor role. Man cannot pay for the damage that he has done. It is absolutely impossible. But throughout the history of mankind, that's what man thought. And that's just as true today as it was in the past. Think about the nation Israel. These are God's people whom the Lord God set especially apart so that through them the Savior could be born. But what does that nation look for in a Savior? Well, time and again they look to a man. That's why, for example, Israel wanted a king. They wanted a king just like the other nations. And so what they do, they implore the prophet Samuel to give them a king. Samuel is very disappointed in them that they want that. But nevertheless, at the urging of the Lord God, he gives it to them because that's what Israel wanted. For you see, Israel was in trouble. They were constantly under attack from all signs and lost many battles. They even lost the ark to the Philistines. But why do you think they were in trouble? Well, they were in trouble because they didn't trust in God. They didn't believe his promises that he would be their savior. And it is for that reason that they figured that they needed a king. And then Saul was chosen. But as you know, Saul failed miserably. And then the Lord God asked Samuel to anoint David as king. His kingship was full of promise. With the Lord's help, David defeated all his enemies. For it says in 2 Samuel 7 that the Lord God gave him rest from all his enemies. But ultimately also the house of David failed. First of all, the kingdom was divided into two. That happened during Solomon's reign. And it went downhill from there. King after king failed, both in Judah and in the ten northern tribes, Israel. Most of them trusted in the sword, trusted in man, or they trusted in foreign gods. They were more interested in earthly splendor than in heavenly splendor. They did not trust in God to lead them out of their troubles. And yet time and again that people put their trust in man. Even after a remnant returned from the exile, most of them sought deliverance through human effort. And that's also what happened when the Lord Jesus himself came on the scene. We come to the second point. The people treated him as they would any other man because that's what they thought. Even the disciples thought that. Of course, they had a high opinion of him. They realized that there was something very special about him. But they saw him basically as a man and not as God incarnate. They only came to that conclusion later. And what do the people now want from that man, that Jesus of Nazareth? They wanted him as a leader to defeat the enemy, to get rid of the Romans. To establish Israel once again as the most important kingdom on earth. After all, isn't that what the Lord God promised to Abraham when he said to him in Genesis 12 verse 2 that he would make him a great nation? 
But the Lord God had tried to teach his people not to seek their well-being, their salvation, or their deliverance from any man. Think about Psalm 146, verse 3. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal man who cannot save. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, it is a good thing that Heidelberg Catechism pays such close attention to the fact that it is impossible for a mere man to deliver us. For we see throughout the history of mankind that that is what man does. He always thinks that one way or the other he is able to make things right. That's also what modern man thinks today. They think, for example, that man is able to save the environment through his own efforts. And that he is able to come to a higher level of existence. And they think that man can even come to the point where he is no longer in serious conflict. So that man can unlearn war. Recently I heard a person on the radio who was obviously well educated. For he was quite articulate and obviously well, widely read. Who said that it is wrong for Canada to be involved in any war. Such as the war in Afghanistan. Because in this way we promote violence. He thought that the only way you could defeat the Taliban is by education. He had a very high view of man's reasoning ability. You could see that in his way of thinking he was convinced that man can come to some kind of utopia here on earth through his own efforts. Brothers and sisters, as long as there is sin here in this world, there will be conflict. There will be bloodshed, there will be poverty, there will be earthquakes and hurricanes and other disruptive forces. There is only one way that we can get out of our predicament. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But not the Lord Jesus Christ just as a man, but as a truly righteous man. Who at the same time is true God. It's very important for all of us to remember that. For we too have the tendency to put our trust in people. That's why, for example, we idolize certain people. We make people, we make heroes out of people with influence and money. For we think that money is the answer to all our problems. As long as we have more money, then our problems are over. We are followers of men. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, a lot of damage has been done. And that damage came about at the time of the fall into sin. And we have been at it ever since, for we sin all the time. There is no way that we ourselves can make things right again. And there is not a person in the world who can do that. There never has been and there never will be. There is only one person who can do that. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. For you see only he is the one who can make that payment. That will restore things to the way they were in paradise. And you know what payment he made. He did not pay with silver and gold but with his precious blood. And that is the only payment that will satisfy the Lord God and that will make things right again between God and us. That will make things right again in creation. 
For because of his payment, everything will be restored to its former glory. Now, isn't that a relief? Isn't that wonderful? We don't have to pay, for we can't. We don't have to restore things. We're incapable. God will restore things through his son. But you have to believe. You have to put your trust in God. And you also have to wait, just like the Old Testament believer. We can't take things into our own hands. For what are we waiting for? We are waiting for that final restoration. Now we live after the first coming of Christ and before his second coming. The Old Testament believer had to wait and believe and trust in God to send a savior and a redeemer. It took thousands of years. They could not try to find a solution with man throughout that whole time period. They had to always trust in God to make things right again, for that's what he promised in paradise already. For if you try to find your solution in a mere man, then you will always end up in failure. If you focus your deliverance on man, then you will always be disappointed. For if you look for other people to save you from your troubles, no matter how wise or intellectual powers, if you look to a rich friend, to an influential politician, to the minister of the congregation, to a parent, to your doctor, to your banker, if those are the kinds of people you first turn to when you are in trouble, then you are going to be in a lot bigger trouble than you already are. Only the Lord Jesus can save you. He is the only one you can turn to, to really help you. That doesn't mean that other people cannot help you in a certain sense, but only in service to God. Only if they guide you in the right way. And only if they also point you to your Savior. No earthly creature is able to do what the Lord Jesus Christ can do. He is the only one you can put your trust in him. For as Paul says in Galatians 3, if you belong to Christ, then you are an heir according to the promise given to Abraham. In other words, God is going to give paradise back to you. He is going to fix everything that is broken. We broke the law. And he fixed it by keeping the law in every respect. And only he could do that. And that law was given to the Old Testament believer to make him realize not only what God wanted from him, but also to make him understand what he has broken. It was given to God's people to make them understand that they themselves were not able to keep the law in the way that God expected. And that is why Paul says that the law was put into effect to lead them to Christ. And it is only by keeping the law that paradise can be restored for there is no place for sin in paradise the Lord Jesus Christ 
he dealt with sin on Golgotha. The Old Testament believer had to wait for that to happen. They had to trust. They had to have faith in God that he would keep his promise to make things right again. But God asks for faith from you and me as well. For now, as it says in Article 25 of the Belgian Confession, the shadows have been fulfilled. They have been fulfilled in Christ. The Old Testament believer did not know exactly how and by whom they would be saved or when. In Genesis, things were quite vague. But as we move on closer to the New Testament period, more and more prophecies are made about that Messiah. The Lord God reveals more and more about him as we see the prophecies coming and as we read from the prophecies how that Savior is going to come and who he is. We read in Isaiah about the suffering servant, for example. And then if you look at those scripture passages then you see that they all point to him. The Old Testament believer had to look for the signs of the first coming of Christ. And now the Lord God asks us to look for the signs of his second coming. We have to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come again on the clouds. And that then everything will be restored. He paid for it with his once for all payment on the cross. What a relief. Amen.